Hello and welcome back to The Irish at War. This is part two on the ambush at Kilmichael. If you've missed out on the first part, I suggest you go back and listen to the first one just to get a good idea of what was happening and to put the whole ambush into some context. Just to recap, we introduced Kilmichael and gave the background, talked about the different viewpoints on it, the controversies surrounding Kilmichael. We talked about the two sides fighting in it, the auxiliaries and the IRA, and generally gave a lot of context to the situation. In this episode, I plan on looking at the ambush as it unfolded, what actually happened, and break it down to a phase-to-phase approach. I'll then look at the various different witness statements from some of the IRA volunteers who were present, and to try and get down to the nitty-gritty about really what happened, and see what they had to say about what happened, and maybe throw some light onto the controversies. So, hope you're ready, hope you like it, let's get started. The Kilmichael site is located in the western area of County Cork between McCroom and Dunmanway. The ambush site itself is located on the Ore 587 in an area known as Shannock Cashel between Kilmichael and Glen Cross. It's just a standard, typical road in West Cork with rocky outcrops on one side, probably about 5 to 10 feet, maybe not even 10 feet tall, and on the other side of the S-shaped road, just saturated bog, low-lying land, no real topographical features. Military doctrine states that an ideal ambush site will allow the attacking party to dominate the key ground and critical terrain. It should provide good cover from fire and concealment from the view of the attackers and limited cover for the enemy. Once the enemy have entered into the ambush site, the terrain features should make it difficult for the enemy to escape. The terrain should impede or limit the possibility of the attacked reorganizing themselves and counter-attacking the ambushers. The Kilmichael ambush site satisfied many of those elements required to make a good ambush location. Now, I'm going to describe this to you really quickly. It's going to sound more convoluted than it is, but I'll try to simplify it and make it as easy to understand as possible. So, if you imagine an A4 page and you turn it on its side, so it's landscape. The road is an S-shaped bend at Kilmichael. And if you put your finger on the top left-hand side of that page and move it diagonally down, let's say about one quarter of the way, and then from that point, move it straight horizontally across to the right, about three quarters of the way of the page, and then you'll have, and then you move it back down diagonally right to the bottom right-hand corner of the page. That's essentially how the road looks at Kilmichael. The top half of that page is to the north, the bottom half of that page is to the south, the right-hand side is the east, and the left-hand side is to the west. It's fairly straightforward. Now, on the north-hand side, there are two rocky outcrops, probably about five to eight feet, and they're split in the middle by a little stream. On the right-hand side is where number one section are located. They're going to attack on the first lorry. On the left-hand rocky outcrop is where number two section is located, and they'll attack the second lorry. There's a little stream separating between the two of them, and I'll get to that a little later. On the extreme right-hand side of that road, before it dips diagonally right down, is a little laneway, and to the right of that is where Tom Barry and his command post were located. On the southern side of the road is a bog it's marshy, it's wet, it's saturated. You couldn't cross it if you tried. 
and that's why it's good to attack here because that means that the auxiliaries cannot escape. And further south, again, are another two rocky outcrops, and that's where number three section are located. To the left-hand side of the road, on the southern side, there is another laneway, and that leans on down to a farmhouse, and that'll become a little bit important later on as well. And that, in essence, is the lay of the land at Kilmichael. It's an A-shaped road. Number one and number two sections are on the north-hand side. There's a little laneway to the eastern section, and that's where Tom Barry and the command posts are located. On the southern side is a bog, and then there's another rocky outcrop where number three section are located. The IRA needed to control these features, these rocky outcrops, and make sure that nobody could cross the bog or escape down the laneway. If the auxiliaries did manage to gain control, it would have threatened not only the success of the operation, but certainly they could have wiped out most of, if not all, of the ambush party. These positions gave the IRA great fields of fire. The auxiliaries, on the other hand, were essentially sitting ducks with little to no cover and were being shot at from at least two different sides, if not three. The road also had no ditches, so the auxiliaries couldn't even hide in there. Those sections on the northern side had great cover, but were left a little bit vulnerable to the flanking manoeuvres because of that stream and the laneway. Those on the southern flank could see the whole ambush unfurl, but their fields of fire were restricted by the presence of friendly forces in the kill zone, and I'll talk a little bit about that later on. There were only two ways in and out of this ambush position, from the east end and the west end along the road. There were no approaches from the north or south unless you came by foot, but like we said in part one, the auxiliary patrol were moving in crossy tender trucks, so they had to come either from the west end or the east end. Barry justifies this position as the ambush site on the basis that there were few alternatives available. He also may have picked this position because there was nowhere for the auxiliaries to hide, and we might be able to assume that Tom Barry understood the limitations of his column's marksmanship. Essentially, pack all these guys into this one open area with nowhere else to go, and even the poorest of shots in his flying column will be able to hit something. The laneway to the western end of the kill zone was a real weak spot. If the auxiliary patrol had become aware of that as they rolled into the kill zone, the second lorry probably would have been able to get up that lane and make a last minute escape. Now that laneway leads up to a fairly big stone farmhouse, which is the only house in the area and the only hard cover in the area. Had that second lorry or any of the patrol survivors managed to get into that house, they would have been able to take up defensive positions and would have been very, very hard to dislodge. If they had done that, they would have flipped the tables completely meaning that the IRA had just gone from defensive positions behind cover, the element of surprise been on their side, to now being on the offensive with very little cover on their side, having to storm a defensive structure. Or the auxiliary patrol would have been able to reorganize from that house and launch a counterattack on the IRA. Or if they had to put up a solid enough firefight, the auxiliaries might have been able to negotiate a much better surrender. Not factoring these possible escape routes into the planning and selection of this position was quite an obvious threat and tactically it was a very poor decision on Barry's behalf. 
and as well as that Tom Barry didn't construct any physical barriers on the road either that might have aided or helped stop the auxiliary patrol trucks. Common practice was to fell trees or dig a trench. Now the flying column at this time didn't have any of the necessary tools for that job but surely they could have been picked up along the way in friendly houses en route to precision. Barry was totally reliant on his disguise, dressed as an IRA officer on the side of the road to slow the trucks down. He made no contingency plan if the trucks didn't slow down, if they turned up that alleyway, or if they realised that here was an IRA officer on the side of the road, they could have shot him, drove into him, or possibly even tried to capture him. He left a lot up to chance. But, as history will tell us, Kilmichael went Tom Barry's way. Once into position, Tom Barry divides the flying column into three different sections. Immediately, problems start to arise with Kilmichael because Liam DC says that Tom Barry split him only into two sections. One section under Tom Barry's control, the other under Michael McCarthy. But let's take Tom Barry's account of it first and we'll get into the other accounts a little later on. In the command post are four soldiers including Tom Barry. These are the best soldiers handpicked by Tom Barry himself and they are hiding behind a wall deployed at the eastern end of the kill zone. In number one section there are 10 riflemen. These guys are posted on the rocky outcrop on the right hand side on the northern side of the road. Number two section are also posted on the rocky outcrop on the left hand side of the northern section of the road. These guys are led by Michael McCarthy, 2IC or 2nd in command. Only 7 of the volunteers will be looking onto the road in the kill zone and engaging with the 2nd lorry. The rest of these guys will be providing flank security and making sure that if another truck does show up that they will be engaging them and being an early warning to the rest of the column. Number 3 section was placed on the rocky outcrop on the southern side of the road and in between their position and the road was a couple of meters of wet soggy bog which was to deny any escape route to the auxiliaries. In number three section there were between six to ten men and they had a good field of fire in the kill zone but once their position was compromised once Tom Barry and the CP got into the kill zone. The weather and light conditions are just as important as well in this ambush. Tom Barry says that the auxiliary patrol comes into view at 4.5. Now he doesn't specify whether that's 4.05 or 4.50 as in 10 to 5. Sunset on the 28th of November is generally around half 4 and dusk is normally by around 10 past 5. So light would have been fading. Now this is backed up by Lean DC who says in his account that light was beginning to fade and the police report also says that, quote, dusk was falling around 5 p.m. So given that information, I'd probably be saying that it's going to be somewhere in and around half four, 4.45. The reason why that's obviously so important is because if you can't see your enemy and in a time before night vision goggles, you're not going to be able to shoot your enemy. The IRA didn't have big floodlights or torches to shine down on them. And if the auxiliaries moved away from the trucks and their headlights, they would have been able to hide in the darkness and possibly make an escape. The other reason why that's so important is because when Tom Barry and the CP move into the kill zone to deal with the first truck, 
they could very easily be mistaken in the dim light by either section 3 or section 1 and could be shot at. As for the weather, the reason why that's important is because it's 28 November, it's been raining all day, you've been lying in position for 8 hours, you were frozen stiff. Tom Barry himself, as I said earlier on, stated that the pants of their trousers were freezing to their legs. Now if you imagine just sitting outside on a cold, wet, miserable November evening for 8 hours, perfectly still, not eating, not moving, that's going to have a considerable deteriorating effect on your fighting capability. Tom Barry was the West Cork Brigade's training officer since August 1920. Now initially, the IRA were very suspicious of Tom Barry for two reasons. One, he had family ties to the RIC, I think his father was an RIC man, and also because of his military past, being an ex-British Army soldier. So they actually kept him on the long finger for quite some time, and he really had to prove himself. But once he was accepted into the ranks of the IRA, he really wanted to inject momentum and increase the tempo, move away from the individual actions and the one-off assassinations that was so prevalent in the IRA at this point. Quite possibly he was buoyed on by the actions of the previous Sunday, on Bloody Sunday in Dublin, where 14 British intelligence officers were killed by Michael Collins's squad. Tom Barry was very ambitious in his drive to increase the IRA to a much higher standard. And in doing so, he wanted to land a massive blow on the Crown authorities. He wanted to lay down a marker to show how tough and how proficient the IRA can be. And so this is the reason for the Kilmichael ambush. Commandant Sean Murphy, in his book Kilmichael, has done an excellent job in breaking down how the ambush unfolded. And he does so into five different parts. Phase one is the flying column moving into the ambush position from their holding area. Phase two is the attack on the first Crossley tender truck. Phase three is the attack on the second truck. Phase four is Tom Barry moving from the first to the second truck. And phase five is the column's activities immediately after the ambush. Phase one. In Vietnam, the US Army felt that for professional combat exposed infantry, that aggressive and effective small unit operations such as ambushes required at least two months of on-the-job retraining. Now, there is no information to suggest that the flying column trained specifically for an ambush under Tom Barry. They probably would have practiced small arms drill, foot drill, basic battlefield tactics, some weapon handling, and some marksmanship of the most basic kind. And in fact, it's very possible that not all volunteers would have fired their weapons because of a shortage of rifles and of ammunition. At Kilmichael, there were no dry runs, there were no models, no sand tables, or any kind of rehearsal. In fact, it is most likely that once they got into position at Kilmichael, Tom Barry told members of the flying column just to shoot the enemy. The flying column assembled at O'Sullivan's farm in Ahalina near Castletown, Kinney and began a five-hour route march throughout the night. Tom Barry's description was that they, quote, walked all night in the lashing rain, end quote, and that they were absolutely drenched by the time it got into position. As I said before, this is going to have a deteriorating effect on the men's fighting capability, but also have a degrading effect 
on their weapons, especially the Ross rifle. Tom Barry stated that only he and his second-in-command, Michael McCarthy, were, quote, the only two people who knew up to late Saturday night that they had hoped to fight on Sunday. It was only once that they arrived at Kilmichael that Tom Barry put his men into position and then told them of the plan of attack. So that's pretty unusual for a troop commander not to inform his troops of the whole point of the mission in which they're about to embark on. But maybe Tom Barry made a conscious effort not to inform his troops until it was absolutely necessary. Now, one could be that he didn't plan the ambush very far in advance. From that previous quote, we can tell that he only knew from Saturday night that this was going to happen. We can also see that there was no barricades, no trenches, no mines used in slowing down the auxiliary patrol. And there are another couple of bits and pieces that we'll talk a little later on that Tom Barry does that would suggest that maybe this ambush was carried out on an ad hoc basis. Or it could have been a counterintelligence ploy and he wanted to keep the plan to himself to ensure that if there were any spies or informants that it wouldn't be leaked on time. And that's a pretty smart idea too. Tom Barry had only been with the column since August so he probably didn't know all of the men inside and out. Now, that's not to say that a few hiccups didn't happen during the pre-deployment phase. And these hiccups give the appearance of this operation being very, very casual. One of these hiccups was the late arrival of Lieutenant Pat Deasy. Deasy wasn't meant to be with the flying column and he wasn't following any orders to join. He simply tagged along. And Tom Barry, rather than reprimanding him or sending him off, which would have been quite dangerous had he been caught, he just posted him to one of the sections. Tom Lorden was another latecomer who had arrived hearing that the column was, quote, looking for action, end quote. And Lorden was posted to the second section. The biggest hiccup of all was when an additional party of four volunteers showed up, literally moments before the two auxiliary trucks arrived on the scene. And this was a far more serious matter, because had those trucks been following those guys, or had those trucks have seen those guys, they would have been aware that something is up. The flying column and the ambush would have lost the element of surprise. And had that happened, and had the flying column and the ambush lost that element of surprise, no doubt they would have been outgunned, outclassed and out-experienced by the better trained auxiliaries. But that didn't happen. The late volunteers said that they were responding to a late mobilization order. Figuring that they didn't have enough time to post them to the different sections, Tom Barry put them up the lane beside this CP and they weren't heard of again throughout the whole ambush. Sean Murphy had to say this about the latecomers. Quote, they either lacked the necessary level of situational awareness or they were unaccustomed to the scale and preparations required for the action being contemplated. They were certainly casual about their own safety and equally oblivious to the threat their tardiness posed to the entire flying column. The fact that Tom Barry was obviously unaware of their intended participation and that they could just decide of their own volition and without orders to take part in the ambush strongly indicated a lack of cohesion in the operations of the column. Not only that, but it also points to a weakness in internal security procedures that the column's intended operation and location were known beyond the column itself. End quote. However, the four latecomers were cleared off and sent up that lane, and soon two auxiliary crossly tender trucks loomed into view. 
the make or break moment was now upon the untested flying column. And while the volunteers may not have been adequately briefed about the conduct of the ambush, they would have been well aware that once it began, this engagement from the ambush would have been impossible. Both sides would be locked together with only one of two options available to both parties. They were death or victory. Phase 2 Tom Barry's plan to start this ambush off was to stand in an IRA officer's tunic on the side of the road beside the CP's location. He hoped that this would slow down the first lorry, making it an easier target for sections 1 and 3 on either side of the road. From there, he would throw a grenade and Mills bomb, and that was the signal for both sections to start firing. Tom Barry recalls getting the first lorry to slow as follows. Quote, for 50 yards, it maintained its speed, and then the driver, apparently observing the figure in uniform, gradually slowed it down until at around 50 yards from the command post, it looked as if it was about to stop. Slowly, it continued on until at around 35 yards from the stone wall, which was the CP's location. The mill's bomb was thrown, the automatic barked, and the whistle blew. End quote. Tom Barry's account is corroborated by Jim Spud Murphy who was also in the command post beside Tom Barry. Interestingly, Murphy's account is different in two areas. One, the distances in Murphy's account of Tom Barry and the first truck are way smaller, perhaps making it sound like Tom Barry is less of a superman. And as well as that, Murphy omits Tom Barry being in a uniform, which is very important. But perhaps it's just a forgetful omission. Murphy's account goes as follows, quote, the lead lorry drove into position. It was allowed to approach to within 25 yards of number one section's position. We were ordered to fire upon the driver and the occupants of the first lorry. The lorry came to a stop five yards from us and Tom Barry threw the bomb into the center of the lorry himself." End quote. Volunteer Paddy O'Brien gives a slightly different account. Quote, the auxiliaries and two tenders came along after four o'clock. The driver of the leading one was shot and thus the tender stopped immediately. Firing had started when Barry threw a Mills bomb and it landed definitely into the tender. End quote. Michael O'Driscoll, who was deployed with two section, gives his account of the brief encounter. Quote, the first lorry drove past our position. The Yogsies were singing. When it got to Tom Barry's position, it slowed up. A bomb was thrown into the front of the lorry and number one section opened fire. End quote. From those opening narratives, it is less clear about how the ambush began. Barry's and O'Driscoll's account say that it was grenade first and then it was rifle and pistol fire. Whereas Murphy and O'Brien, they say that it was pistol and rifle fire first and then the grenade. Tom Barry changes the statement in around 1974 and says it was a combination of the Mills grenade and the burst of rifle fire from the CP that began the attack. An important aspect of the grenade attack is that it would have had a very different effect depending on where it landed. Had it landed in the back of the lorry amongst the rest of the cadets, most certainly it would have either killed or grievously wounded the majority of those guys. But had it landed in the cab, no doubt it would have killed the driver outright. But because the cab was a self-contained unit, it would have absorbed the majority of the shrapnel, which meant that the cadets in the back of the truck probably didn't suffer any physical damage. They were more than likely concussed 
but still able to put up some form of a confused or staggered defence against the attackers. Once the grenade had detonated, that was the signal for the rest of the command post to jump up onto the road and join Tom Barry. From there, Tom Barry and the command post engage in close quarters and hand-to-hand -hand combat with the first nine auxiliaries in that truck. Supporting fire from sections one and three would have been impossible at this point for a number of reasons. One, with fading light, it might have been very difficult to differentiate between friend and foe. Two, because they were engaged in close quarters combat, a clear target may not have been able to present themselves. And three, the volunteers in section one and three may not have been that good of a shot and they obviously did not want to have any friendly fire incidents take place. Tactically, Barry was leaving nothing to chance. He had handpicked the best fighters in the flying column and stuck them in the CP with him. Knowing that these guys were going to be able to engage in close quarters combat and eliminate the auxiliaries in the first tender by hand if necessary. Barry knew that he had to capitalise and move very quickly on the first lorry while the occupants were still suffering from the concussive effects of that grenade blast. Now there are obvious dangers involved with close quarters battle and hand to hand combat and at any minute Tom Barry or any of the guys from the command post could have been shot. And if Tom Barry had been shot, the second command of the flying column, Michael McCarthy, at section 2 was not in the best position for command and control. And if the tables had turned and the situation had gotten worse for the flying column, McCarthy was not in the best position to get his guys out of there quick and safe. But that didn't happen. Once that grenade exploded, the Oxys in that first lorry were probably concussed, confused and staggering to get out of that tender and deploy in some form of a defensive position. They grabbed the rifles and their pistols and tried to reclaim the initiative or at very least tried to defend themselves. The auxiliaries in the first tender would have been faced by Tom Barry and the command post moving in on them from a very short distance of no more than 25 yards. No doubt the auxiliaries put down a tremendous amount of fire probably firing from their pistols as they were quicker to fire than their rifles. The engagement must have been ferocious and terrifying for all involved. Tom Barry accounts for John Flyer Knighton killing one auxiliary with a bayonet. But once Tom Barry and the command post had engaged with the first lorry, all the auxiliary cadets were quote dead or dying end quote and not a single wound was inflicted upon the attacking party. This sight must have looked and heard otherworldly for the IRA men in sections 1 and 3. None of them would have ever experienced such violence, such noise and the sound of dying men. To the volunteers in number 3 section, with Tom Barry and the command post in the middle of the killing zone, they more or less became redundant and were demoted to the status of spectators as the chance of friendly fire was just too high for them to participate in that action. Tom Barry's account of engaging with the first lorry is quite theatrical, but he actually gives very few facts about how the fighting was actually done. Tom Barry, if nothing else, was extremely lucky. Up until this point, he was able to stand on the side of the road in enemy uniform, stop an enemy patrol truck without being shot or killed or engaged properly. He was able to accurately throw a grenade 35 yards and be able to land it bang on target. Then he's able to move forward with three other guys, 
covering somewhere of up to 25 yards very quickly and killing seven to eight men while not suffering a single wound. That is incredible. But that's if we were to take Tom Barry's account as Bible. Because if we don't, it's very fanciful. And so questions start arising very, very quickly about how Tom Barry and his comparatively poorly trained command post take on all these guys in the first lorry and get away scot-free. I'll talk about this a little later on when I start talking about the revolver experiment that was conducted by the Irish Defence Forces and Maynooth University. But until then, let's just say that Tom Barry is either very lucky or very imaginative. Jim Spud Murphy was one of the command post team who had joined Tom Barry on the road and eradicated all the occupants of the first auxiliary lorry. Murphy's account of what happened is a much more brief affair. Quote, We engaged the first truck with rifle fire and killed the driver and other cadet occupying the cab. Once the lorry came to a halt five yards away from the wall, then Tom Barry threw the grenade which landed into the back. End quote. Murphy doesn't mention anything about close quarter combat that Tom Barry did, which is unusual because, as part of the command post, Spud Murphy would have been right there beside Tom Barry, eradicating all the auxiliaries of the first lorry. So that's pretty unusual. Killing somebody up close is probably not something that you forget very easily. So you gotta ask the question, why didn't Murphy mention it? Or did he just omit it and not want to talk about it? That's a possibility too. But either way, Murphy's account of how the engagement actually started is very different to what Tom Barry said. Tom Barry's leadership up at this point can go one of two ways. One, it was either extremely brave as he quite literally led from the front, a real soldier's leader. Or two, he was reckless. He was reckless about his own safety and more importantly, the safety of the column. Remember, there was no contingency plan. So had Tom Barry been hit, as I said before, the whole flying column could have been in dire straits. And as the only column member with formal military training, Barry's leadership and direction was vital to the success of the operation. Not only that, but Tom Barry took the best shots and the best soldiers of the flying column in with him into the command post and put them in the most dangerous spot. If Murphy or Knighton had been killed, how would the rest of the column react? What would the rest of those guys do? Would the rest of the column be able to kill the rest of the auxiliaries? Perhaps, but had any of those guys from the command post been killed, how would the West Cork Brigade replace those top quality soldiers? Tom Barry doesn't seem to think about that. Insofar as his position, Barry doesn't pick the best spot. Certainly not to have a good vantage point where he can see all the action unfold. Instead, he's tucked away at one side where certainly section two can barely see once the lorries pull into place. And once the action begins, Tom Barry doesn't have any command and control over anything that happens. He simply has to let it happen and react to what's happening. Not only that, because he and the command post jumped right into the middle of the kill zone to take on the first lorry, he essentially eradicated the need for both section one and section three removing two-thirds of the column. Now, I know I sound like a broken record repeating myself again and again, but it is incredible that Tom Barry and the command post members were not struck at all by a single bullet when they were assaulting the first lorry. 
And what I'd like to do is I'm going to quote from prominent Sean Murphy's book, Kilmichael, because they conducted an experiment in which they tried to reenact Tom Barry's account of the assault on the first lorry. Murphy's account of the experiment is pretty long-winded, so I'll give you the abridged version. So essentially what they did was and how they set up the experiment was they did four main things. They set up four torso targets representing Tom Barry and the rest of the soldiers in the command party 15 yards away from the firing line. Even though Tom Barry would have obviously been much closer, especially when they were getting into hand-to-hand combat. They picked seven shooters with various different levels of marksmanship. Each shooter was subjected to short, intense physical and mental pressure, followed by a 30-yard sprint to the firing line. This was to replicate the intense physical and mental fatigue that the auxiliaries would have been experiencing after the grenade exploded. And then finally, once at the firing line, the shooters would grab the Webley revolver and fire off six unaimed shots as quick as possible. The results of this experiment are pretty revealing. Now there were seven shooters, each with a revolver, a Webley 45 with six rounds each. There should have been 42 shots fired, but there was one misfire, so there was only 41 shots actually fired. Of those 41, 18 bullets hit the targets. So that's a hit rate of 44%. Five of the seven hit the target with their first shot and the following shots decreased due to the rapid nature of the firing. All shots were expended between 5.8 and 8.4 seconds. So some of the better shots were able to fire off a shot in under less than a second and some of the other guys took a little bit longer. Four of the seven shooters had extensive and previous military experience and of those four, 24 shots were fired with 13 shots hit, indicating a success rate of 54%. The remaining three had little to no experience of firing a handgun of any sort and 17 of those rounds were fired, these guys had the misfire, and they hit their target five times, resulting in a hit rate of 29%. So, five of the seven hit their target with their first shot. That's a hit rate of 71% at extended range under pressure and against a torso target. Like, imagine jumping into your car and knowing that you were gonna have a 71% chance of getting into an accident. You'd be super careful. You'd like, you'd probably never use your car. So, it's really difficult to comprehend how Tom Barry or any of the guys in the command post were completely unharmed and managed to kill in a variety of different ways and not have a single scratch on their bodies. It just doesn't add up. And Tom Barry will actually admit to this in the sense that he says, quote, there are no bad shots at 10 yards range, end quote. But apparently, if you're an auxiliary, well then you are a bad shot. What's also unusual is the fact that the auxiliaries in the first lorry are unable to hit anybody up close with a 71% chance of hitting them. While the auxiliaries in the second lorry, they have a much better success rate. But I'll get to that in a little bit. Tom Barry then goes on to say that within five minutes, all occupants of the first lorry had been exterminated. But even had some of the auxies survived, their prospects were pretty bleak. 
The flying column was not in a position to take prisoners and certainly didn't want to leave auxiliary personnel in the rear while they moved to attack the second lorry. So no attempt was made to take prisoners. No quarter was given. Barry informed his men before the attack that this was going to be a fight to the finish, to kill or be killed. And this is exactly what happened. All these auxiliaries were killed. So the question still remains, were the auxiliaries just killed outright? Or did they even have the chance to surrender and were just killed nonetheless? I'll let you think about that and I'll come back to it a little later on. After the attack on the first lorry, Barry replenishes his ammo from the dead auxiliaries. Now here's where there's another fault with Barry's account because the only automatic weapon in the flying column was Barry's Peter the Painter, which was an automatic pistol. He refers to that earlier on when he says the automatic barked. But the auxiliaries wouldn't have any compatible ammunition for that. So he couldn't have replenished that, but maybe he was talking about replenishing rifle ammunition. Either way, phase two is now complete with nine auxiliaries dead and zero casualties on the IRA side. Phase three. Number two section had been allocated the task of dealing with the second lorry. They were deployed on the northern high ground at the entrance to the ambush site. While the lead lorry was eliminated within five minutes, according to Tom Barry, the second lorry put up far more of a staunch defence. Number three section also had a good field of fire on the second lorry, but Tom Barry had warned them of the ricochet possibility, so it's unlikely that they assisted very much, if at all, in engaging the second lorry. I think it's fair to assume that the occupants in the second lorry knew the fate of the guys in the first lorry as soon as they heard the pistol and rifle fire and the grenade explosion. As soon as they heard that, their training kicked in. It would appear that the driver of the second lorry attempted to turn it but was unsuccessful and began to draw a lot of fire from number two section. Unlike the first lorry, the auxiliaries in the second were not stunned or disorientated by a grenade blast. Using their years of training and combat experience, they began to conduct themselves properly in anti-ambush drills, which were to win the firefight and get the hell out of the kill zone. And that's exactly what they tried to do. In his book, CJ Chivers tells us that during British Army training exercises, of which all the cadets would have experienced and passed, that, quote, squads and sections of troops were constantly attacking each other in company training, often without the orders of officers and non-commissioned officers, so that the ranks would act increasingly of their own initiative. End quote. And that's exactly what the auxiliaries in the second lorry did. They tried to win the firefight, they advanced, they tried to assault the positions where they thought the enemy would have been, which, given the terrain and the time of day, muzzle flashes from the IRA's weapons would have given away their location. Having assessed the situation, the Oxys in the second lorry would have either had to fight their way out or take their chances and surrender, hoping to be disarmed and sent on their way. From Tom Barry's account, it would appear that many of these auxiliaries chose to continue to fight on, and a fierce firefight began and lasted for quite some time. Being outgunned and not as well trained as the auxiliaries, number two section could not eliminate the second truck as quickly as the first truck was. 
they soon found themselves in a lot of trouble. Phase 4 This stage of the ambush is the most prolonged, taking somewhere between 30 to 45 minutes, according to Tom Barry, before it all ended. Now, Tom Barry issued every IRA volunteer with 35 to 36 bullets before the start of the ambush. Given the intensity and the duration of the combat, this cannot be true for two reasons. One, given the time of day that the ambush began at, light would be fading very fast and it would have been almost impossible to hit targets even at those ranges. And two, the IRA would have expended their ammunition very, very quickly unless they were able to limit themselves to firing only one shot every minute for the entirety of the firefight. Tom Barry, as if from a scene from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, had single-handedly started this ambush. He had thrown the grenade at max range and landed it perfectly spot on target. He then dashed 25 meters and engaged in close quarter combat and hand-to-hand -hand combat and eradicated all occupants of the first lorry. He now had to replenish his ammunition from the dead auxiliaries and having assessed the situation at the second lorry, he knew that he was going to have to neutralize that threat at the second lorry with himself and the command post. Volunteer Edward Young recalls Tom Barry and the command post, quote, moving up the road in an extended line, shooting as they came, end quote. Once again, it is astonishing that Tom Barry and the command post are able to move from one lorry to the other this time they have to cover three times the amount of distance and at 75 yards it is another miracle that not Tom Barry nor any of the guys in the command post were not hit by enemy fire while they approached the second lorry. It is at this stage of the ambush that the alleged false surrender occurred. What I'm going to do is read from a number of eyewitness accounts to give you an idea of how confused everything is and to highlight that it is as clear as muddy ditch water about what actually happened. Tom Barry's account goes as follows, quote, We had gone 50 yards when we had heard the auxiliary shout, We surrender. We kept running along the grassy edge as they related the surrender cry and actually saw some of the auxiliaries throw away their rifles. Firing stopped, but we continued, still unobserved, to jog towards them. Then we saw three of our comrades from number two section, one crouched and two upright. Suddenly the Algies were firing again with their revolvers. One of our men spun around before he fell and Pat DC staggered before he too went down. When this occurred, we had reached a point about 25 yards behind the enemy party and we had dropped down as I gave the order. Rapid fire and do not stop until I tell you. The enemy, sandwiched between two fires, were again shouting, we surrender. Having seen enough of their surrender tactics, I shouted the order, keep firing on them, keep firing number two section, everybody keep firing on them until they cease fire. End quote. Timothy Keown, or Keohan, I'm not sure how they pronounce it down in Cork, is one of the few accounts from the many IRA men who were there that mentioned this felt surrender. But in everything else, his is very different from Tom Barry's account. Quote, at this stage, Tom Barry blew a blast on his whistle as a signal that all men should get on the road. At the same time, he moved his section along the road from the east to take the survivors in the rear. 
Barry then called on the enemy to surrender and some of them put up their hands. But when our party were moving onto the road, the auxiliaries again opened fire. Two of our men, John Norden and Jack Hennessy, I think, were wounded by this fire. Pat Deasy had been wounded, while Jim O'Sullivan and Mick McCarthy had been killed prior to this happening. The OC, Tom Barry, immediately ordered an all-out attack and after a few sharp bursts, the enemy forces were silenced. End quote. Jack Hennessy was a member of Number 2 section and gives a very dramatic version of events. But while it is dramatic, some parts do corroborate with Timothy Cohane's, especially in McCarthy being dead before the false surrender and the whistle blasts blown by Tom Barry. His account is as follows. Quote, the second lorry was just opposite our position. The Yogsies jumped out and tried to find cover. The driver stayed in his seat and attempted to back the lorry out of the position. I was engaging the Yogsies on the road. I was wearing a tin hat. I had fired 10 rounds and had 5 bullets go through the hat when the 6th bullet wounded me in the scalp. Vice Commandant McCarty had got a bullet through the head and lay dead. I continued to load and fire my rifle but the blood dripping from my forehead fouled the breech of my rifle. I dropped my rifle and grabbed Michael McCarty's. Many of the Yogsies lay in the road dead or dying. Our orders were to fix bayonets and charge onto the road when we heard three blasts from the OC's whistle. I heard the three blasts and got up from my position shouting, hands up. At the same time, one of the Yogsies about five yards from me drew his revolver. He had thrown down his rifle. I pulled on him and shot him dead. I got back to cover where I remained a few minutes firing at living and dead Yogsies on the road. The column OC, Tom Barry, sounded the whistle again. Nearly all the Yogsies were wiped out. When I reached the road, a wounded Yogsie moved his hands towards his revolver. I put my bayonet through him under the ribs. Another Yogsie tried to pull on John Lorden, who was too near to use his bayonet, and he struck the Yogsie with the butt of his rifle, breaking the Yogsie's skull. End quote. Michael O'Driscoll, who was also in Section 2, has a different account of the proceedings. Quote, the second lorry was just approaching our position and had not quite reached it when the driver stopped and tried to reverse. We opened up. The Yogsies jumped out and sought cover, replying to our fire. The fight was generally along the road. Jim O'Sullivan, who was alongside me, was killed. As far as I can judge, a bullet struck his rifle and part of the bolt was driven back into his face. Michael McCarty, our section commander, was also killed. Pat Deasy, another of our section, was seriously wounded. Tom Barry had dealt with the first lorry and he led a party along the grass verge of the road to come up behind the Yogsies fighting us. Soon the fighting was over. We were ordered out onto the road. End quote. Same thing again. O'Driscoll doesn't mention a false surrender. Doesn't seem that this fighting was going on for 30 to 45 minutes. It seemed very, very quick. And his account of Jim Sullivan's death when a bullet struck his rifle. Well, that's quite interesting, but we'll get to that a little later on. So you should be getting an idea of how different all of these accounts are to one another, which really shouldn't be the case because these guys all experience the same thing. Patrick O'Brien, who was involved in the attack on the first lorry, describes Barry's involvement in the second lorry as follows. Quote, Tom Barry rushed onto the second tender where the fighting was going on and where three of our men had been shot, one being killed outright and two seriously wounded. 
the driver of the second tender had not been hit as he was driving it into position when the attack on the first one commenced. He was manoeuvring it, trying to turn it, when the auxiliaries in it jumped out and were trying to get into position. The fight was short however and only one of the enemy exceeded in getting away from the scene. He was shot later in the day in McCroom. All others were fated casualties except one who survived his wounds. End quote. Same again, here there's no account of a false surrender. He states explicitly that it was a short fight and not a 30 to 45 minute fight. So once again, there's a lot of discrepancies with Tom Barry's account and the other volunteers accounts too. Spud Murphy, who was in the command post with Tom Barry, describes the events as he saw them. Quote, by this time, the second lorry had entered the western end of the position and was attacked by the men of number two section. Some of the men of the second lorry got out onto the road and took up positions by the fence and started firing back at the men in number two section. We were ordered out onto the road. Tom Barry first, we followed. We got down on our knees and we opened fire on the men that got out of the lorry at the other end of the position. After an exchange of fire lasting about 10 minutes, they were all killed with the exception of one man who jumped into a bog and ran 50 yards before being shot. End quote. Same thing again. It's a short fight, only 10 minutes this time, certainly not 30 to 45 minutes as is accounted for by Tom Barry. There's no mention of a false surrender. So everyone's account here is very different and Murphy's should be exactly the same as Tom Barry's because he was there right beside Tom Barry doing the exact same thing. So why the discrepancies? The only thing that is really clear from those accounts is that once the auxiliaries in the second lorry realized that they were in an ambush, they knew they had to counterattack. They tried to win the firefight, regain the initiative from the IRA, and that's why there was such a heavy rate of firing. Now, it is possible that the auxiliaries from the second lorry were totally distracted from the fire coming from number two section that they didn't see Tom Barry and the CP coming up the road. But I do find that hard to believe because they knew fire was coming on from that end of the road because they had just seen the first lorry been fired upon from that side of the road. But the real question here is, did a false surrender take place? Is Tom Barry's account of what happened at Kilmichael actually true? Did the Uggsies throw down the rifles and then whip out some pistols and inflict some casualties on the flying column? Or were the rest of the Uggsies killed because of this false surrender that some of their counterparts engaged in? Or were the Uggsies killed as a form of payback because the flying column had lost three men? Or, or did the Uggsies even get a chance to surrender? We must remember that Tom Barry had a point to prove not only to his superiors who were a little suspicious of his loyalist past and his ex-British military career, but also he wanted to lay down a marker to the Crown authorities to prove that the IRA were capable of bigger, bolder and bloodier battles against their troops. All of this will be discussed in the next episode. And so until then, good luck. <laughs>